Hey, how you doing? Welcome to night school. You know, today's my mom's birthday, which I'm not going to make this another eulogy to her. I wrote some things that I published. I'm going to start saying that more often. Instead of post, I'm going to say published. Because these social media platforms, you know, kind of try to market themselves as publishers, I'm going to say, I published this. I published something. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's my, mom, my mom's birthday, so naturally she's on my mind. I wrote something about her given, you know, it's been just a little over a year since she passed. I still have things I'd like to express. And to me, I think this day, it's obviously a personal holiday for me, it being when she was born. It's when she was born. Uh, but it's also to me, I think January 21st is always going to be the start of my new year or maybe January 22nd, but either way, I think for the rest of my life, because I've been waiting for this day, like New Year's Eve, New Year's Day didn't matter, you know, the inaug, the inaug yesterday, obviously that doesn't really matter to me, um, but uh, I think because January 21st is this very important day for me to think about my mom, I think that will always be, for the rest of my life, kind of my new year. You've heard of the Chinese New Year? Well, this is my new year. But yeah, I don't want to make this episode a, a total eulogy and go on about that, because my mom is a part of this show. She comes up, especially given how relatively recent her passing was. But uh, what I'm thinking about today actually has more to do with a theme I've been hitting on lately about you know nature and technology. And... Uh, Right now, I'm, I'm experiencing, I, I basically feel like an exhaust vent. I feel like an exhaust port or an exhaust vent where everything is coming out of me, very little is coming in. And I spend long periods of time where things are primarily coming in. You know, I think that's part of my practice, as they call it. My spiritual practice, you know, meditation, some different things I do are very much taking things in. Uh, but right now, I think just with the chaos that's been building throughout this month, with all of these key political events, with the general mood, the general climate, socially, mentally, psychologically, I think the only way I have, and it's not even by choice, I think it's just my natural function, given where my life has led me, is to be an exhaust vent. And I was thinking about the Judas Priest lyric. It's from the album Turbo, which I got. My friend Miles was working at a record store when he lived here, and I never came in. I never came into that record store. But one day I was just probably feeling the same way I kind of do now, actually, now that I think about it. I was feeling particularly, my energy was, was particularly outgoing, and I, I was just making my way around town. I, I stopped in a few different places, I stopped in another record store, and I knew the guy who owned that. Uh, but uh, I ended up going to the place where Miles was working, and he said it looked like a cartoon character walked in. You know, he was not used to seeing me, this person that he knew very well, but he was not used to seeing me. And he's the one who came up with the whole cartoon boulder example. He's the first person who really pointed that out to me. I was always aware of it, but the idea that the animated object in a cartoon is illuminated differently than the background objects, even if it's supposed to be part of the background objects, the boulder that's going to fall. And the first time I ever noticed that was I was watching a cartoon where somebody opened up a locker in a locker bay. It was kids. 
And I noticed that one of the locker doors was outlined differently and the color was slightly different. And sure enough, they opened it. I was a little kid and I was like, oh, okay. You can tell what they're going to interact with. And, and in real life, I feel like there's an element of that where you know, you almost intuitively know certain people are different. Not that the people themselves are different, because I don't like the whole NPC thing. People say, NPC, it's dehumanizing. And sometimes the most boring person could end up changing your life. You just never know. So I don't, I think the whole NPC thing, if you're not familiar, it means non-player character. And it's basically like become this internet slang that has been popularized to refer to kind of boring people who just say what they're expected to say, almost like villagers in an RPG. That's kind of what an NPC is, but I think it's a dehumanizing way to think about people. And sometimes the people with the most decoration and flair are actually the biggest NPCs, but I won't even see them as NPCs. But anyway, I walked into Miles, uh, the record store where he was working, and I remember that day he, he was just taken aback because it's like, what are you doing here? You'd think your friend works at a record store. You'd think you'd hang out there or something, but no, what are you doing here kind of vibe. I felt that way too. What am I doing here? But I went over to the used records, and this is before the big vinyl boom. You know, people were, you know, of course, always buying vinyl, especially certain types of people. But this is before the big boom. And so you could get just a Judas Priest record for two bucks. You could get a a Judas Priest record in good shape for like two bucks. And they had Turbo, which isn't probably the most desirable Judas Priest record. But I I wanted to buy something. I was like, I'm here. I want to buy something exactly what I thought uh and hey there's a Judas Priest record I don't own you know and I actually don't own many Judas Priest records um that might be the only one I own on vinyl but I, I was like I'm gonna get turbo and uh there's a le- the long story short is that album has a song on it called Reckless, and there's a lyric, and it's the best song on the album. It's kind of a boring album. You know, it's not a very exciting album. You don't typically hear people talk about Judas Priest Turbo, but there's a song Reckless, which is just a good stomper. It's got kind of a stomper rhythm, stomping rhythm, and there's a lyric, uh, no one can stop me now. I'm like a human dynamo, and periodically I go through phases of my life where I feel that way, and it's a good song to listen to when I'm feeling that way. And I've been feeling that way for the last, I would say, at least two weeks. I would say about two weeks now. Um, and uh, it's not a manic state. It's not a mania. You know, somebody might, some armchair psychologist might try to tell you it's that. And I say, good luck with that. You know, modern psychology, you know, the greatest, as much as modern psychology has done a great service and helped many people, and I would never deny that, it's done a great service in the way that it has created so many armchair psychologists who try to process things they don't understand using those terms. It's, it's, it's just kind of sad to me that that's how it is. So it's not a mania because there's, there's never any crash when I go through this. I just feel, I mean, like a human dynamo. I feel like nothing can stop me. And there is a recklessness to it. And I, I felt this way before. And it's not the first time that Judas Priest lyric has come to mind. It always comes to mind when this is going on. And when my life was in tatters in many ways, like when I was just not taking good care of myself, when my diet, my drinking, my outlook on life was bad, 
there was a, a major downside to feeling this way because that recklessness translated to self-destruction. Right now, that's not the case. While I feel reckless, like, like I would describe the feeling I have right now as everything I touch, I inhabit. Everything that I touch recently, I feel like I inhabit, including my nature phone, which is why it is a nature phone. Because if I can inhabit it, it's nature. It includes my computer, it includes my keyboard, it includes my car, the dog leash. You know, I did some drawing the other night. I finished a drawing that I, I chipped away at slowly, and I managed to finish it in a way that uh, I was kind of unhappy with parts of it, and I finished it in probably the most tolerable way I could. Like, there's always going to be something I don't like about things I draw, and not in a self-hating artist way, just in a sheer, like, oh, I wish I would have done that differently way. And so I, I'm just feeling this strong energy of uh, everything I touch, I inhabit right now. And because of that, I have to take advantage of that. And I wish I could take advantage of it in a way that was ultimately more profitable, maybe. And it's a weird thing to wish for. It's not like I'm sitting there being like, God, I wish that this was more profitable. I wish everything was more profitable that I'm doing. But I guess it is profitable because it's productive. And while it's not profitable in a practical way, it's profitable in the sense that I feel like this is what I should be doing. And to restrain myself, I think, would actually be the worst thing I could do. The only reason that I would have to restrain myself right now, because I have that ability. I have the ability to restrain myself when I need to. But if I were to restrain myself right now, you know, I think it would be purely to like prevent myself from being outwardly destructive in some way or self-destructive, which those tend to go hand in hand. You know, the more self-destructive you are, the, the higher chance that you're going to be outwardly destructive as well. So I think that would be the only reason that I would try to restrain myself. But I feel incredibly good. I feel that my interactions with people are largely good. And so that's a good baseline. While having this energy can be repellent no matter what, especially if people are insecure or whatever it is. And I mean, you run the risk, too, of being narcissistic or vain. And you always think about the Bible quote. I always think of the Bible quote. You always think of it. <laughs> I always think of it. Uh, there's a quote in the Bible. I don't know exactly which passage it is, but it's pretty well known, which is, all is vanity, vanity of vanities. And you can easily use that as justification for being vain. Oh, the Bible says that all is vanity. And my friend Nick G, his record label, Recalcitrant Noise, included that quote, I, I believe on, I'm trying to remember if it was on multiple releases. He listens to this show sometimes, so maybe he'll he'll let me know. I'd have to go through my collection and see. But I know on a, at least one record, he included that quote, uh, all is vanity. But as the Bible says, vanity of vanities, which I like. Vanity of vanities. But you always run the risk of being vain when you express yourself. Especially when you feel that you are inhabiting everything you touch, everything you do. And that's a feeling you don't always get, which is why I try to take advantage of it. I try to take advantage of that feeling because it's a lucky feeling. You feel like 
hey, that thing that I'm always after is with me right now. Because so often we feel disconnected. Because the thing is, is what that feeling is, it's not that I'm inhabiting every individual object I touch, it's that I feel that I'm inhabiting the world. And when you feel that you are truly inhabiting the world, when you feel that you are truly connected to the world in a given moment, well, hey, Judas Priest, nothing can stop me now. I'm like a human dynamo. So if you're connected to the world, if you feel that you are truly inhabiting the world in this exact moment, you are going to inhabit everything you do and everything you touch. And I think sometimes you access that sensation or feeling based on personal circumstances. But other times it's in response to what's going on in the world. And what's going on in the world to me, despite how orderly the armed inauguration was yesterday, I didn't pay attention to it. Uh, I'm glad people are happy, you know, seriously, like, even though Joe Obama bin Biden isn't my guy, and I don't like what all that represents necessarily, I was really happy that the people who have been so upset, people who have been, who've allowed themselves to be miserable, and I'm not saying that it's all just internal, you know, maybe external things too have accounted for that, but to a large degree, they've allowed themselves to be miserable. I'm glad those people felt relief and they were happy. And that shouldn't take anything away from anybody, even the Trump's felt supporters, even the independents. You know, if people feel relief and happiness in a given moment and it is not outwardly destructive, I'm happy for them. I, I really mean that. Um, but with the, despite the, the, the phony orderliness of the event yesterday, uh, the forced order- orderliness, there is a, still a lot of chaos in the air. And I think in large part what I'm personally responding to is that chaos. And I don't want to go on about this too long because what I want to actually get into is my view that has developed, I think it's been something I've always had in my head, but it's been pushed along by coronavi and lockdown and increasing reliance on devices and my belief that this is nature. And in feeling like I inhabit everything I touch right now, including my clothes, including my car, it includes social media. It includes text messages. It includes phone calls. It includes this show. It includes what I was working on artistically. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make a difference what it is. And we've been experiencing a lot of growing pains related to the internet and social media. And there have been growing pains all along, as there should be. There should be growing pains. And with growing pains, there is fear and there is reluctance. And like I always joke about, in the early days of the internet, you used to hear people were like, a pedophile is going to take my kid away. Some random dude in a chat room is going to steal my wife. And if I order something from Amazon, uh, they're going to take my credit card info and my identity. I'm going to lose everything if I use the Internet. You know, like like that was people's attitude. And there still are some people who feel that way. But people were terrified of it. And then now they're like giving their lives away to it. But they don't seem to be in control. And... The last decade has been the rise of social meteor, 
And some people treat it like a meteor. Like when I when I came up with the joke social meteor, I didn't even mean it to be like a catastrophic thing. Although I thought about it later and it's like, oh yeah, people do treat it like it's a catastrophe. People are like, like you hear a lot of like these guys write books and they get interviewed on podcasts and it's like, you came up with this amazing idea and you wrote a book about how social meteor is tearing us apart. Social media is tearing us apart. You know, it's like you, you hear people say that. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I remember back in the, the days before I was born when we had two world wars without social meteor. I remember uh, reading in history books about uh, all the famine and plague and war and pain and death and torture. The medieval dungeons that we had before social meteor. You know, it's like the idea that social media is some sort of catastrophe when you look at human history, and it's like, what should that tell you? Climb up a rung on the ladder and look back down, and if you still don't see it, climb up another couple rungs, because if you look down at the bigger picture, you see, oh, the issue is us. The issue is not technology. You think social media is telling, you think social media is tearing us apart? What would you have said 100 years ago? Books are tearing us apart? You know, talking is tearing us apart because that's all true, too. It's not that that's wrong. Books have torn people apart. Talking, calling somebody on the phone has torn somebody apart. So don't pretend that social media is somehow more catastrophic or that it's causing more division than we've previously had. While there are undoubtedly growing pains, it is just as natural as those things And you can treat it like those things. You can inhabit it in the same way that you would inhabit something that is more material. Because it's material, too. It's not like it's pure ESP. You know, bringing up the Alan Watts samples I put on the the last Every Night's a School night. Where he's, even though he died in 1973, he saw all this coming. And it's not because he was some prophet. It's because he understood the patterns of time. Alan Watts was able to understand these things. And he, Alan Watts makes reference to Marshall McLuhan, which, you know, he's another guy where you listen to him decades ago and you realize he's talking about now what we're experiencing. And it's not because he was a prophet, although why not just call him a prophet? I have no problem with calling somebody a prophet. Um, but uh, with the, what Alan Watts was talking about in those samples I used is he was talking about like we started with the roads, he says, the road was the first form of communication we had. It was a path to other people that we could take. It, we weren't just wandering, you know, we, just, we didn't just choose a random direction and walk there. You know, we, we made specific roads that went to specific places, and that was a specific form of communication. We don't think of that today. Like, we don't look at roads today and say, oh, hey, look, it's a, for- look, it's a, a mode of communication. It very much is. And I would bet you money, I would, no, I bet you a steak dinner that there was a time where someone said, I don't know if it's such a good idea to build a road to that village. I don't know if it's such a good idea to, to build a, a path to that other town, uh, whatever it is. Uh, there might have been someone who was like, I don't think that's such a good idea. I think we should just stay here. I don't think we should build paths between our huts. You know, it's these paths are dividing us because, of course, familiarity breeds contempt. And if you build roads between places, 
while that promotes a certain degree of cooperation and friendliness, it also opens up more opportunities to disagree. And what has social media done? It's given us a lot more opportunities to disagree and split hairs. And while Alan Watts wasn't talking about social media, he does talk about, uh, you know, he basically starts talking about roads and he brings up cars. He brings up like individual helicopters, which, of course, we don't have, but that's what people imagined in the future, like these hovercopters. And uh, but then he brings up the idea of like a like a TV that can project a laser beam and create a holographic image of of your friend or somebody you know in your house. And he talks about somebody having a meeting of five people where four of those people are projected from the TV. And that's not entirely different from uh, Skype or Zoom or whatever it is people are using to have online meetings. Well, yeah, we don't have holographic projections. You know, at the at the time Alan Watts was talking about this, there were no com, there were no personal computers. He, if you died in 1973, there was no way you could have visualized exactly what we would have in the form of personal computers and nature phones. So he didn't know exactly how it would play out, but he nonetheless had a vision of people having remote meetings with projections of each other in the same room. And then he said the next step from there, because that will that will create people's ability to essentially read each other's minds, which if you look at social media or I've mentioned this before, but it's worth it, it, it's necessary to go over it again, which is it is we're, we're getting a view into each other's collective consciousness into the collective consciousness it is while it is a simulation of the collective consciousness it is the closest and most direct way that we've had to experience the collective consciousness ever arguably ever i don't know what they had millions of years ago before the volcanoes erupted and the earth respawned restarted i don't know what it was like before they hit restart on the earth um, but, uh, you know, as far as our lives go and our concept of history, social media is a simulation of the collective consciousness. It's not a perfect simulation. It's not the actual thing, but it's, you know, in giving us a simulation of it, it increases our understanding of each other's minds and how we think. And yesterday I popped onto to Facebook for a second. And, you know, I could have predicted what certain people were saying about the inog. I could have predicted. I could have practically written a script. And I don't say that to call them NPCs because I don't feel that way about them. But I could have pretty much scripted it myself because I've, I've gained an understanding of how people communicate. I've gained an understanding of how people express themselves on there. And what is that? Is that, am I psychic? No, you know, I'm not. I've just learned. And we are learning about each other's brains at a rapid rate. And again, of course, there are growing pains because we don't like what we see. We don't even like what we see in our own minds half the time or more than half. So it's like, of course, seeing into other people's brains in almost real time. Because, I mean, what else gives you that experience? What else gives you the experience of going to a news feed, seeing something pop up, that just came out of somebody's mind, like that just exited somebody's mind. And you're seeing, like, especially when you see something posted online that says it was posted like minutes ago or seconds ago, you are almost experiencing their thought 
Does that mean that that's exactly how their thought works? But they, they nonetheless thought it. And, you know, to invoke Judas Priest again, it's reckless. It's reckless because we think recklessly. We express ourselves recklessly sometimes. Especially when we aren't in the same room as people. Like when we are in our own space. We have the comfort of being in our own space. And we're not slowed down by the path that our thoughts take when they come out of our mouth. Instead, our thoughts just come out in the form of this keyboard or this, uh, you know, letter, whatever you call what phones have. It's not a keyboard. It's something. It's a something. But so we're experiencing people's thoughts at a much faster rate and in a way that we've never really experienced. And so while it's not quite ESP, it's going to increase our capacity to expect certain thoughts from certain people whose thought patterns we're starting to understand, even if there's a level that's performative, even if there's an aspect that is, this is what this, even if there's an aspect of it that's like, oh, this isn't what this person really thinks, it's what they want people to think that they think, that's still going to expedite the process I'm talking about, which might not be full-blown ESP, but it's getting close to that. And so I don't think Alan Watts is off base at all in saying that first people are going to have these laser projections of themselves having meetings in each other's homes from the TV, and then that's going to develop into ESP. And then that, in turn, is going to develop into no longer needing ESP because we are so in touch with other people's thoughts through ESP that they're is no longer any distinction between people, and we are simply one again. And then I have to imagine that that process breaks apart again. Once we become one again, once, you know, you go from this... Because, I mean, the thing about, too, about social media is it's not just a simulation of the collective consciousness. You also get a feel for the collective unconsciousness because these things aren't unrelated. And you can't have the collective consciousness without the unconscious. And you can often read between the lines. Like when you see something online and you read between the lines, first of all, you might not be right because your own insecurities and assumptions project all kinds of things onto what people say and do. Oh, he's doing this. He's saying this because of this. Oh, he's trying to give this effect. And you might be right about some of it, but not all of it. But still, when you do that, when you're able to read between the lines on something like social media, or you, you are experiencing the collective unconscious. You are experiencing something that is unconscious because it's not explicitly stated. It's underneath all of that. And the person expressing that thing, the person expressing the thing that you're reading between the lines on, they might not even know it themselves which is the collective unconsciousness, too. Because the thing about the collective unconsciousness is it's a part of you, but you may not be aware of its influence. So in interacting in this way, we are experiencing both the collective consciousness and the collective unconsciousness through a simulation of both of those things. So there's a lot of levels to it, and I'm only, I feel like I'm only beginning to comprehend it and I, I, I would never dare say I do comprehend it, but I'm, start, I'm starting to kind of understand it a little more. And I think being in Coronavi, being in lockdown, 
has uh, sped that process up for me. And uh, I believe we inhabit these things as much as we do our physical bodies to some extent. You know, because one of the ideas, one of the teachings in Buddhism is that you are not your body. And that's very difficult for us to understand. What do you mean I'm not my body? No, you're not. You know, you are not your body. Your soul is not your body. You inhabit your body. And some people feel more comfortable in their bodies than others. And that should be proof enough that you are not your body. And people will do everything they can. They will follow modern science to its furthest conclusion in an effort to feel comfortable in their bodies. And even then they might not. And they might blame other people for it. I mean, you see a lot of that with the whole like fat shaming thing where it's like, oh, the reason I'm uncomfortable in my body is because you don't like my body. And while there might be some truth to that, I'm not going to say there's nothing to that. People get completely focused and preoccupied by that. And it's like, you know, you'd be better served, like, first of all, getting in shape. I mean, I mean that. I think one of the reasons why when I'm in this state that I'm in right now is that I feel one of the reasons I feel really good is because my diet and fitness is is going off really well right now. I'm very focused on those things. Therefore, I'm not sidetracked by anything. And I, I mean, you can't help the fact if you're sick or injured or any number of things. But it's like I know personally that the fact that I'm not worried about my body right now and I'm pushing my body, I'm getting all the physical energy I can out right now. I think that aids in this experience where I feel like I can I can inhabit everything because I'm totally at peace and totally comfortable inhabiting my own body. And I don't love having a body. Like I'm a, you know, I'm not really, I'm not into like sensual pleasures. You know what I mean? Like I've been celibate for years, both consciously and unconsciously. Like I, it's both a combination of accepting that that's just my place, like being a monk. Not that I joined, you don't have to join a monastery to take on some of those lifestyles. Like you don't have to shackle yourself, you know, to an altar in a monastery to be a monk. And for me personally, that's just where my life led me. You know, and my life has just led me here. So it's not like I took some vow of celibacy. Like if I meet a girl and I like her, that's totally great. I'll go with that. But the reality is, is... I'm not attracted to sensual pleasures right now. Yeah, like, they come and they go. Uh, But uh, that's just not really a part of things. I just feel comfortable being in my body and not using that body as a means to an end or anything like that. That's kind of what I mean. So if I'm comfortable inhabiting my body, I think I got kind of distracted there, but uh, if I'm comfortable inhabiting my body, but I also don't see my body as me, Why should I not be just as comfortable putting my consciousness into this microphone, into the keyboard, into my phone, onto a piece of paper? I haven't been playing guitar, but, you know, I I think the same would apply to that. I'd be totally comfortable putting myself into that in that moment. And I don't want this to sound grandiose. I don't want this to sound grandiose, and you always run that risk 
when you talk openly about these things, but I want to, I want to break it all down. And so for me, it's like with the, with these different modes of expression, I don't really see a, a boundary between myself. And as a result, lately, I, I've been posting more on social media because I don't feel the need to restrain that. I think it's good to be able to restrain that, but I've just, again, I feel like an exhaust vent right now, and there will be a point in time where that exhaust vent closes. You can't sustain this, and if you think you can sustain this, you're going to be in for a a crash or a disappointment. You know, for me, like when I've gone through this before, I just kind of fade back into normalcy, and I'd be totally comfortable living this way forever. Because the last time that I truly felt this way was actually when my mom passed away. And I've talked about that extensively, so I won't go into it. But it was a more, even, an even more extreme version of this. Except the difference was I couldn't apply it to my own interests. Because I was so focused on practical, spiritual, emotional matters. That there was no way I could channel this kind of feeling into into like just my hobbies or something, you know what I mean? Like there's no way that I could have focused on that. But it was a similar sensation. And the other time that I remember this was in, I would say, spring 2018 maybe. And that was a weird one because it was sort of between, that was sort of a, it was a very creative period for me, but there was also some darkness to it that isn't here for me right now. There was a girl, there was some disappointment with a girl which for me is always, that always pushes me into a kind of fatalism. Uh, is anytime there's some kind, something doesn't work out, not even like a breakup, like this wasn't even a breakup or anything. It was just like a, a new girl had got come into my life and we kind of tested the waters and the waters weren't good for either one of us. And while it was the right thing, it just kind of like, I felt haywire as a result. And then you combine that with this kind of feeling. And fortunately, I was creative. Fortunately, I was sober. But there was no crash. That's the thing. Is it's not like some manic episode where you crash or you go through that. I wouldn't call it a mania. Even though to somebody who's outside of you, especially if they're not feeling wonderful or they're not an insider into the way you think or the way you operate, it's really off-putting. And I totally accept that. Which is why when I do interact with people when I'm like this, I want to make sure I communicate that I'm feeling good. Not too good, but I'm feeling, not too good, but I'm feeling good. And I wish the best for you. And I don't expect you to understand the way I feel. <laughs> Which sounds like something, uh, I, don't, I don't know what that sounds like. It sounds like something your therapist would tell you. Tell people this. Um, but you, you kind of have to, you do have to consider other people. You do have to consider other people, um, but you you want to make sure that what's going on isn't unhinged. And while there might be an element of chaos to it, if you can manage to just stay on your track while you do this, that chaos doesn't go anywhere bad. And then just for contrast, I remember having this feeling in 2017 before I quit drinking and I was partying hard, I was involved with a, a girl that I, I, I had no business being involved with. I am not ready to talk about it. Um, 
but uh, just for various reasons, for pra- very practical reasons, actually, it's not an emotional thing. I'd be more than comfortable talking about it on my own level, but there's reasons why I can't talk about it, actually. I know that sounds stupidly uh, secretive or something, but it is stupidly secretive. Um, but uh, anyway, like I kept hearing the song Free Fallen during that time. I kept hearing the Tom Petty song. Like I was, I remember taking an Uber to a party with some people. And sure enough, Free Fallen came on. It seemed like everywhere I was going during that period, Free Fallen. And I think part of that is just, as much as I love synchronicity, I think part of that is just that that song comes on everywhere. But I really felt like I was free falling. I felt reckless. But while you can use recklessness to your advantage when you're doing okay, like when your life is more orderly than it is not, when your life is more structured and disciplined than it is not, you can kind of give in to impulse and give in to recklessness. And I think it's important to do that. Because I don't think discipline is discipline. I don't think restraint is is restraint if you're disciplined all the time and you're restrained all the time. I don't think that that counts. I think you have to give in to the chaos. I think you have to give in to recklessness a little bit, not too far. And I think one of the reasons why you maintain a discipline, one of the reasons why you structure your life is so that when you do give in to that, it's not a catastrophe. But I need to get back here to, but but anyway, like when I was going through this during a darker time in my life, it really seemed like I was going to die. I was coming from an extremely fatalistic place where, and I think I would have died. Because that was when I suddenly, that was the darkest night of the soul that I've had. And any dark night of the soul that I've had since then, while I, I would never assume I won't go through that again, any dark night of the whole, of the whole, <laughs> dark night of the whole, any dark night of the soul I've had since then has been much more of kind of like, a, you know, more like just like a nice dusk compared to that period of my life. And it was that period of my life that led to me directly saying, no, I've got to, I have to change right now. I have to stop drinking. I have to devote myself to something else. And part of that, I think, just led me there. Like, I felt like I was led there, but you still have to make that decision. You still have to commit yourself to changing. And up to that point, I had changed in many ways, but it was still like there was this, like, I need to do, I need to just cut this off right here feeling. And I'm glad I did. I knew I had to make that decision right then. Otherwise, who knows what would happen? Uh, So... It's, it's been interesting having this sensation this, of having this exhaust vent be opened at different fa- in different phases while I'm going through different things. And I'm glad to be going through it at a time where even though the world has darkness, even though my life has a lot of practical uncertainty to it, even though I very much have worries, I have concerns, I'm stressed about many things actually, I don't feel bad about it. I don't feel down. I don't feel any of that. But what got me going on this very self-involved, like, again, vanity, you know, you can easily get into this narcissistic sort of vanity when you talk about these things. Hopefully some of that is of marginal interest to anybody who's listening. But in feeling comfortable with your body, in having control, in having discipline when it comes to your body, the other things you inhabit aren't a problem either. 
Like if you're comfortable inhabiting your body, which to me in the Buddhist sense is as much an illusion as anything, you feel comfortable inhabiting everything else. And I think when you feel comfortable in your body, you also feel comfortable in your mind. I mean, not that those two things are the same thing, but just that, you know, it all comes from, again, feeling comfortable inhabiting the world. When you feel comfortable inhabiting the world, you feel comfortable in your body, you feel comfortable in your mind, you feel comfortable in everything you do. Even the discomfort has some sort of strange comfort to it. And, uh, you know, to go back to the technology stuff, I think that's been one of the big growing pains is even though we're past the point, most people are past the point of feeling uncomfortable inhabiting the internet. Like people have been on social media, they, they have this representation of themselves, a visual representation, they have photos of themselves, they have their thoughts documented, and that's a, a form of themselves. People say that's not real, it's real. That is real. And you may not be comfortable with it, but it's real as much as anything is. That is you too. You know, that is a part of you too. And while people have gotten comfortable with the idea of using their credit card to order toilet paper from Amazon, and they've gotten comfortable meeting people online, because you used to hear too, people would say, oh, you met her online. You're meeting a girl online. You don't, she's going to have a dick. You know, you hear people talk about things like that. And, uh, you know, it, it, now it's just people are like, yeah, you know, everybody's meeting people online. I saw a graph. I saw a uh, a graph that showed the different ways that people have met each other over the last 20 years. And you, and you see where there's this sharp spike going up the last 10 or 15 years, and it gets sharper and sharper upward of people who met their significant others online. And that includes, you know, apps. That includes the Tinder, the tendril, as I call it, tendril. Uh, but that, that includes all of that, of course. But we've seen where there's been a sharp increase in that. And this was a thing that people thought was really uncool. It was really uncool to meet somebody through Tinder. Now when a friend tells me they met somebody through Tinder, I don't think twice about it. I don't think twice. So you can see where we've become more comfortable with the fact that we inhabit these platforms. And that leads us to meeting people in person. And I think like one of the issues is people, people think that social media, they think the internet devalues reality. And for me, that's not the case. Like, I'm still a material person. I am still a person who values material objects, my material body, the place that I'm in, all of that. But I don't necessarily see it as more real or more true than these other platforms and kind of like I was getting at with history where it's like people are like social media is tearing us apart and it's like yeah well they didn't have it during World War II they didn't have it during these catastrophic events in history so how are you going to blame social media for all of these problems when humans find a way to divide themselves and hurt themselves anyway and we always have focusing on social media is a distraction from the issue which is you yourself and your relationship to people. Your relationship to people. It's true, though. The issue is in you. And the problem with social media is that 
people have problems on an individual level. They have problems with other people. And that's naturally going to play out on these platforms. Like nothing bothers me on, on social media. Like I, I made a post last night about all of the calls for political violence because I still see a bunch of that stuff. And maybe it's just the environment that I'm in. Maybe it's just the people I know. And I have to make a distinction. This is people I know in real life, people I know personally, still making calls to violence, like punch a Nazi. And it's like, you better know what a Nazi is. And it seems like people don't somehow. But even then, you shouldn't be punching a Nazi. Is that going to bring them back? Like, what's that going to do? Not to go on too much of a tangent here, but what's it going to do to punch a Nazi? Do you want to kill them? Why don't you just say kill them? Why don't you go all the way? Because punching them, maybe you're going to knock them out. You think that's going to knock some sense into them? What do you think that's going to do? It's just a, you only want to do that because you want to express aggression and you think that that's going to discourage other people from, you think it's going to discourage them from thinking the way they do? Do you think it's going to discourage other people from being Nazis? It's not. In fact, it might turn more people against you because you're the one committing an act of violence against somebody who is expressing themselves and they might be expressing themselves in a way that you find horrible and you have every right to believe that. And I actually, my free speech absolutism is so strong that I don't think you should be prevented from saying punch a Nazi. I think you have every right to say that, but you should know what you're saying. And I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of the people I see saying these things, a lot of the people I see making these demands for violence are young women. While during the the riots during the summer and things like that, there's a tendency to see everybody saying these things. In the downtime, the people that I see consistently doing this, and this is multiple people, a lot of it's young women. And young women are the least likely people to be involved themselves in violence. Like, I doubt any of these people have ever punched anybody. And if they did, it would probably be some part of group action, some sort of mob action. So it makes me wonder, like, what are you hoping? Do you want men to kill each other? Because that's what we end up with. You know, it doesn't matter how progressive your ideology is. If things, res- if, if things turn into horrible violence, what you're going to see most of is men killing each other. Because that's what we do. And there's nothing sexist about that, because listen to what I'm saying. Men are the most violent creature in our, in, on the planet, practically. You know, we are the most violent creature on this planet. So when you, when you encourage violence, and we can see where that hyperbole has become a reality. And I think you should have the right to express that hyperbole. You better know what you're talking about. You better know a little bit about violence, because I do. I don't come from a violent background. I'm not a violent person, but I've made it a point to understand violence, and I don't think I do, but I've still made it a point to try, and I, the older I get, the less, the less I want anything to do with that, the less I want anything to do with encouraging violence in any way, and have you seen the movie Falling Down? That's what I ask, you know. The movie Falling Down, what it's about is how easy it is to justify violence because you as the viewer want to root for Michael Douglas because he's, he's the main guy. But you find out he's not the protagonist. He's the main guy, and every little thing he does 
is kind of fucked up, and you know that. Like, when he holds the McDonald's hostage for not serving breakfast after 10 a.m., it's fucked up because he's holding a McDonald's hostage. But on the other hand, you kind of understand that there's something just so absurd and infuriating about the fact that fast food places who, you know, everything's like probably frozen and easy to make. The fact that they have some stupid distinction between breakfast and lunch, you know, it's absurd. And if you've ever experienced something where you you get there at like 10.02 and they're like, oh, we stopped serving breakfast at 10, there's something infuriating about that. And Michael, so it's like, you can see where Michael Douglas is fucked up for doing that, for holding them hostage. But there's a part of you that's also like, well, I kind of get the justification. And some of the other things he does are the same, including killing a Nazi. And in that case, the guy's trying to hurt him. But you can see where that, that's a story about a guy who, like, every, every little thing he does, every little thing that he rebels against with his gun is something that you can justify responding to. Like, you can, you can justify, like, when he kills the gangbangers who are trying to hurt him, you know, who gave him shit, like, you can relate to that. You're like, yeah, those guys deserve it. The Nazi deserves it. Oh, like, yeah, like, it sucks that stores overcharge for a can of pop. You can kind of understand the justification of that, but it's almost like watching The Sopranos, too, where it's like, even though Tony's the main guy, and you treat him like he's a protagonist, it's a great show because he's a piece of shit, and he kills people, and he cheats on his wife. God dang it, it's phones, man, just one sec. All right, are you there? Are there a little bit of a gap there, I apologize. Some sort of, I felt like that was perfect timing because it was a, you could hear me get mad there and it was some sort of scam, like a medical scam, which is perfect. And I didn't get mad, but I I was just trying to figure out because they lied and said they were from the hospital up the street and they pretended that they were like calling about something else and the guy had a thick accent. And uh, so, you know, it's all the signs were there that it was some sort of scam, but that's exactly the point because like I make it a point to not get mad at those people because I understand they're just doing a job because there's always a justification I feel like that was the perfect timing because it's that sort of thing where like Michael Douglas in falling down if he had just gotten that call which was a medical scam like they were trying to manipulate me on the phone into like getting some sort of medical service that I don't need to do God knows what take my money I don't know what uh, take my kneecaps he kept talking about back pain and kneecaps is what he kept talking about. But you can see where, like, if Michael Douglas in Falling Down had gotten that phone call, he would have, like, shot the phone. And there'd be something relatable in that. It's like, yeah, I hate them, too. I hate those people who call you with scams, too. And that's what the movie Falling Down is about. It's about justification. And as a viewer, like, there's a, there's a scene in Falling Down because, you know, he it culminates in him going after his ex-wife and kid. Like he, you, and you realize at that point that, oh, even though everything he's done up until this point was sort of justified, like he reacted a little too severely, but everything he's done up to this point is kind of justified. And you as the watcher kind of relate in a way like, yeah, I get mad at that too. You know, so you, you kind of relate to it up to that point. But then when he starts going after his ex-wife and kid, you're like, oh, wait, he is a psycho. He has lost his mind. He is scary. He is dangerous. And the protagonist is actually uh, Robert Duvall, the cop, who's, who's been following him. And uh, 
there's a, a line in Falling Down where he says, I'm the bad guy? Michael Douglas says, I'm the bad guy? Like, it's news to him that he's the bad guy. But in a way, that's the viewer reacting. Like, the viewer is actually kind of saying that yourself. Because you've been kind of supportive of him. Well, you might have some reservations about how he's responding, and it is a movie. Uh, you kind of say to yourself at one point in that movie, and chances are you said it to yourself earlier, but it, it very much is the same thing that Michael Douglas said, you know, where it's like, I'm the bad guy, and like you yourself as a viewer are kind of like, oh, he's the bad guy? I guess it didn't fully dawn on me until now. And so that's kind of like the violence thing, where you can always justify violence, and you can always justify especially violence in response to violence. And if someone calls you out for that, if someone calls you out for encouraging violence and you find yourself getting really defensive, if you find yourself feeling you need to challenge that, rethink your program. Because there will be a time where violence might be necessary. But you should think very hard about what necessary is. And I'll tell you what, encouraging violence, even if you feel it's justified, is not going to be a necessary situation because you don't know what's necessary until you're in that situation. Um, this is just, just a little tangent there because it's been on my mind when I see all of this violent hyperbole that is becoming less and less hyperbole. And, uh, you know, I've spent a chunk of my life studying all this. I really did. I, I spent so many years reading about killers, war, pain, death, horror. As a squeamish person, as someone who hates blood and guts and always has, as somebody who kind of get my arms feel light, I feel a little bit light, like I might faint or something when I'm exposed to too much of that stuff. But I psychologically have always made it a point to understand that stuff, and I never did. I never fully understood it, but I understand what can lead to it. I understand how you can justify it. So just a tangent here. I posted something online about it because that's what I was feeling in the moment, and that's kind of my whole MO right now. Lockdown has made me realize that interacting with people in these, what we think of as immaterial forms, are just as material as anything else. And I've been talking a lot to my friend who's going through, a, you know, a, sort of a divorce, uh, that kind of, just that kind of situation. And uh, we're not together in the same place talking about this. We're not sitting there with beers in our hands, hugging each other. I'm here for you, man. I'm here for you. We're just chatting, chatting through a messenger service. And that's just as powerful that's just as potent. Why shouldn't that work? If you let that work, it works. That's as natural as being in the same room. It's not the same. It doesn't take anything away from being in the same room. It's not preferable. Because I think that's an important part of this. Is Sometimes when you encourage technology, when you encourage something... Because I mean, sometimes like I have a friend and she will send me like 10 long messages in a row usually kind of ranting about something in her life. And when she does that, like sometimes I'm in a place where I can respond. Other times I'll just call her. I'll just, she'll send me these messages and I go, Hey, I'm just going to call you so we can just talk it out real quick. Because 
our material voices, which it's funny how those aren't material. Do you think your voice has more organic residue than a message? The message actually is something you can read again and again. That sounds more like residue, even though you can delete it. That almost has more residue than your voice. And of course, you can record a voice as I'm doing here. Uh, but you say something out loud and it's gone in most cases. Does that make it better or worse than something that is cyber technology? I'll let you be the judge, but I think that they're all equal. They're all natural. Um, and uh, I think that uh, these things should exist, but not at the expense of the organic and not at the expense of the material. And I think that's where I make a certain distinction, even though I see these things as just as like if I express myself online, to me, that's no different than expressing myself to somebody I'm talking to on the phone or somebody I'm sitting across from at a, a lunch table with a steak dinner in front of us. You know, it's no different to me. And you have to become comfortable with that. And the discomfort you feel with that, it could come from your own insecurity. It could come from the fact that you know other people will judge you. They will. And you have to be okay with that. But uh, you have to get over it in the same way people had to get over online dating, in the same way they had to get over their fears of like, 99.9 of internet users are pedophiles trying to take my kid away from me. They're going to fly my kid out to Denver, Colorado, and I'm never going to see him again. That's why I don't let my kid have AOL. You know, people got over that. And there are, there are probably there are more pedophiles on the internet now than ever. Because there are more people on the internet now than ever. There are more kids on the internet now than ever. But yet our extreme paranoia about pedophiles on the internet is a smaller factor now than it was in 1997. So what does that tell you? It tells you we got over it. Because we realized that you're just as likely to encounter a pedophile at the park as you are in a chat room. And what does that tell you? That nature is nature, baby. It's all nature, baby. But I have reservation about certain things. I don't want this to come across like I'm totally cool with... Because, I mean, I think the soul is an important part of this. You know, and I know that's getting out there for some people. It shouldn't be. Everyone's always talked about souls. And I use soul as a placeholder word for something I don't completely understand, but I feel I have a sense for and with souls, the reason why I feel that I can inhabit technology in the same way that I inhabit my body or my car or my house is because my soul is a part of all that. And I have reservation about things like chatbots and AI because that's not your soul. And I saw an article recently. I didn't read it, so I don't know what it actually said. But the headline said that Microsoft is trying to develop chatbot versions of us when we die. That sounds kind of crazy, but it also sounds like something they do. And we've already seen, I talked about it on here, where that family, the parents of the Parkland shooting victim, had an AI, they at least endorsed an AI version of their son, their dead son, to make a political campaign like denouncing gun law. I don't know what the, it was, it was they were having him like denounce some law that people were going to be voting for and I'll, I will never judge those parents 
because they obviously were put in a very difficult situation where their son is dead and they feel probably strongly about this law. I'm not out to tell them what to do or not do with their son's likeness. Like, I'm not going to tell them they shouldn't have a painting made of their son. So I'm not going to tell them they shouldn't have an AI rendering of their son on my own level. In the same way that I'm not going to tell them what to do, they can't tell me what to do. And my reaction is that's tacky. It's tacky to have your dead son endorse some sort of political issue because, you know, where your son's at, they they don't have politics. That's my opinion. You know, one of my mom's friends today, a really wonderful, sweet lady, though, she was like, I wonder what your mom would have thought about, like, the inauguration yesterday. And I totally forgot my mom felt this way, so I was actually pleasantly reminded. But her friend was like, uh, your mom once said that Joe Bama bin Biden was too touchy. And I was like, oh, yeah. My mom thought Joe Biden was a creep. She thought he was a creepy guy. And actually, the worst insult that my mom could say about a man was he's creepy. When she said that, it would cut to the bone. And she had an incredibly good creep radar, which is, I think is how she survived you know, I think she survived coming from the background she did and making something of herself as an independent woman who was very susceptible to, you know, the influence of other people and, and their misdeeds. She, she very well could have been a victim, but I think that she, I think her creep radar was so well honed that that aided in her, her survival with, you know, minimal trouble in life. Um, so, like, I remember her saying that. I remember her pointing that out to me. Like, she felt the same way about Trumpsfeld. Like, she hated Trumpsfeld. I don't even know that... I don't remember her hating Trumpsfeld because he was creepy, necessarily. She just hated him. And she didn't have Trump derangement or anything like that, but she hated him. She'd be happy that he's out of office now. But her friend bringing that up, she was like, you know, I wonder what he'd think, uh, you know, this and that. And, and I was like, you're right. She did say that he was creepy. And she, when she said somebody was creepy, she meant it. So she thought Joe Bama bin Biden was creepy. I think she'd prefer him over Trumpsfeld. But I said to my mom's friend, I was like, the wonderful thing is, wherever she's at, they don't need politicians. And that sounds heavenly to me. That's what I said, because it does. The, I, I think heaven doesn't need politicians. But uh, whether my mom's in heaven, I think heaven is incomprehensible to us. And I don't think heaven is entirely different from the Buddhist idea of liberation, soul liberation. I don't think, I think that the afterlife and and the the afterlife of a life well lived with proper conduct is incomprehensible to us. But I don't see, I, I see heaven in the Christian sense, I see it as analogous to liberation in the Buddhist sense. And somebody could nitpick me. And, you know, Buddhists nitpick other Buddhists. Christians nitpick Christians. So, you know, you're even going to find that even if you stick to an orthodoxy. But I don't think the idea of liberation is entirely different than attaining some sort of admittance into heaven. But it felt good to be able to say that because I was kind of worried, like, sharing stuff about my mom's birthday today. I was a little worried somebody was going to be like, oh, your mom was so ha- would be so happy that Joe Bama bin Biden was elected yesterday or whatever it is. And uh, wherever she's at, it doesn't even matter. 
It's like it's in the same way it bothers me when somebody's like, "Your father would be rolling in his grave." It's like, who are you to believe that he would care about some of this stuff? You know, these people inhabit the universe now. Speaking of inhabiting, I think one reason why I haven't missed my mom as severely as I would have expected when I was younger is because it really feels like she inhabits everything now. And as a result, I feel her presence constantly. I feel the sensation of her constantly, and I have for the past year. That feeling never went away. And not everyone might be that lucky. Like, I was talking to my mom's friend who is a Buddhist, a different friend. And, uh, you know, because I did the whole... I don't know if I talked about this on here, but I did the whole Tibetan Book of the Dead. Like, I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Like, I bought... Like, my mom asked me for the Tibet. She wasn't a Buddhist, but that was... If She said if she believed in one thing... Buddhism was closer to it than anything else, but she didn't meditate. She didn't, she told me like meditation to me is like when I wake up in the morning and I just stay in bed for a while, <laughs> which, Hey, that sounds right to me. If that's meditation to you, nobody can, that sounds right to me. You, you sure seem to live it. You sure live a life that uh, as somebody who has it all flowing. So if that's meditation to you, that sounds like the right kind of meditation. But, uh, she, uh, had asked as a Christmas president, pre, as a Christmas president, as a Christmas present, she asked me for the Tibetan Book of the Dead years ago, and I bought it for her. And I think it was the night she died, or maybe the next night. I think it was it was the next night. Maybe my friend Anna came over, and we were just going through the house. We were going through the bookshelves, and I, one of us pulled out the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and I was like, "Oh, I'm going to read this." And Anna's mom is a Buddhist, and we become really close, and. Uh, I was told about the 49th day, you know, the 49th day is the day when you basically build up to that point. And that's when the soul either, I think it's like the soul still inhabits the earth up to that point, And then that's when it departs for its next destination, whether that's liberation, whether that's a new body, I don't know. But I was talking to one of my mom's friends a little bit about that. And I think it was after the 49th day. And I did do some rituals and stuff. I did as closely as I, as closely as I felt comfortable with, I didn't follow things to a T, but I did it in my own way. But her friend sent me a message and was like, Oh, I think your mom's in a new baby by now. I can just imagine she's, and I was like, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if she's liberated and that might just be me being her son. But if anybody achieved soul liberation, I, cause I can't imagine somebody doing it better. I can't imagine a human being doing it better than my mom did it, life. I can't imagine somebody doing life better than she did it and being as generous and giving and supportive and naturally wise. I can't, I can't really imagine it. While also being astonished and naive in a good way. Like, she always had a youthful way of seeing things. She was never hardened. She was never cold. There was always something kind of pliable, and it seemed like the best of all worlds. And uh, not to say she was perfect, because she didn't believe in that herself, so I would never say that out of respect to her. I think it's more respectful to say she was imperfect, because we're all fallen. You know, we all have our edges, you know, um, our cracks, as she would put it. And uh, But anyway, like, I kind of... I. 
I feel like there, there's a degree of liberation, you know, to what happened with her. But I don't know what that is. It's it's incomprehensible to me. I can only speculate. I can only guess. I don't follow a particular doctrine or orthodoxy, so I'm not going to believe a particular outcome happened. But heaven sounds good. Liberation sounds good. If souls do return to other bodies, hey, that's wonderful too. Maybe in this lifetime, she'll be born into a wealthy family and be pampered because that's what she deserves. Whereas in her the body that I knew her as, she was born in dirt. She was born on a farm, surrounded by trouble, and she overcame it. And, uh, you know, maybe she'll be pampered the next time, but maybe she was pampered the previous time. You know, who knows? You get into these things, all these possibilities, all these different beliefs, and you just spin your wheels. And I don't need to have some definite belief. I just know that it feels to me like my mom inhabits the entire universe I live in, and what would what more would you want from that? It's nice to not worry about where someone's soul went or or their energy or anything else. It's nice just to feel this way about it. Why try to pinpoint it? I don't need to. It's interesting. But yeah, it, it's funny how everybody though kind of has cuz cuz what her friend said when she said like, "Oh, I think she would return she would want to return to another body to continue to do more good work for people." And I like that idea. That's a sweet idea, and that's very much my mom, but I, I don't know. Because I can't see somebody doing much more good work than she did, you know, and that's that. But I feel like all of this, you know, while this might be a little bit of a sidetrack, uh, all this stuff about inhabiting the universe, inhabiting new bodies, reincarnation, it plays into what I'm saying about technology as well, where you can inhabit these things and somebody might not like that. Somebody might not like that way of thinking. But what is, what other way do you have to explain that? What other way do you have to explain the way that your consciousness, especially when you're coming from a pure place, like if you're expressing yourself as purely as you would express yourself in your body, if you're, if you're expressing yourself with the same degree of purity online, how is that different than inhabiting a body versus inhabiting the computer? It doesn't mean that you are now the computer. Like, obviously, you can't leave your body. There is a difference there. But it's like, these things are extensions. Like, you add these extensions to yourself that you can now use. And those extensions are dependent on the time and place in which you live. But it seems that your ability to be a part of those things and to use those things as tools, it seems like it doesn't really matter what time or place you're in, you can do that. Um, I don't know, and people don't have a problem believing that, like, when when there's, like, a child prodigy who plays the piano really well, people don't have a problem imagining that that child's soul is kind of expressing itself through the piano, but yet people make this big deal when you start applying that outward from there to other devices, to other things, and I don't know, if your sole purpose in life is to be one with your smartphone, that doesn't sound very inspiring, but if your smartphone is a part of that, if it's one of the tools, because, you know, I've talked before about how, you know, a pagan today doesn't just go like, oh, I'm never going to use any technology. I'm a Luddite. That's not what a pagan does. A pagan uses these tools because they know that they can inhabit them. They know that nature inhabits them. Because if you can inhabit something, nature is, you inhabit nature. 
If you can inhabit something, you know nature already inhabits it because you can't go where nature doesn't go. You know, this. Th- it's going to take a little while for me to completely flesh these thoughts out, but I feel like I've made progress with them. I think Coronivi has contributed to this where we're stuck with our devices, we're stuck with our entertainment. And I don't feel this way about television. I think one of the reasons why I don't watch most TV or Netflix or movies is because I don't really communicate with them. Like, I don't like to sit and I'm a multitasker and I'm somebody who likes to be active. And there's a time and a place to rest. There's a time and a place to watch a movie. But for me, like, I don't I don't like those because I, I feel extremely limited. I don't feel like I'm gaining anything. I don't feel like I'm learning anything. Yeah, you can, of course, I mean, there's a connection. You can learn from movies and TV and all that. But it's like, I just, I don't feel that I'm a part of it. And maybe that's my own vanity. Maybe that's my own ego. I don't know. But I do like to feel that I'm interacting in some way. So a lot of my interests involve interaction. And that's only a problem if you run out of energy. And if you run out of energy, that's when you can sit and watch Netflix. But I can tell you right now, I don't feel any lack of energy. I don't feel a lack. And I'll, I'll save you the trouble of uh, repeating the Judas Priest lyric, but I do feel that way. And I'm feeling more and more tired the more I talk right now. I think today is sort of a down day. I did a lot of push-ups yesterday. I pushed myself physically the last few days, knowing that today would be a day of reflection knowing that today I would be thinking about my mom, that I would be talking to people about my mom, knowing that, uh, you know, I stayed up too late, knowing that I stayed up too late, you know, things like that, you know, it's like I, I kind of knew today might be a little bit of a crash. I'm drinking some coffee right now later than I typically do. Um, so, you know, yeah, today's a little bit slower, which is good. But if you have the energy, feel free to use it, and you're probably going to feel better And if you want more energy, use more energy. You're not a car who needs to be filled up with gasoline. Yeah, you need to eat. You need to do, you need to fuel yourself. But the more energy you exert, the more your capacity for energy increases. And that's something I've learned. You know, where the more, you know, you do need to rest. You do need to take care of yourself. You don't want to hurt yourself. You don't want to get sick. Which is why you have to like clear your path, you know, clear your insides, eat well, exercise. It's amazing how much more energy you have. Because some people will say, oh, you should get exercise because uh, it'll help you sleep. It'll help you rest. That's a funny way to think about exercise. Oh, you should exercise more so that you rest more, so that you're more tired. That's cool if that's what you do, if that's your system. But for me, it's like I exercise so that I have more energy, not less. Um, to me, that's like drinking coffee so that you crash later. I don't drink coffee so that I crash later. I drink coffee to give me energy. I eat well because when your body burns through stuff efficiently, you have more energy and more mental clarity. When you exercise, your body becomes more efficient. It becomes stronger. You have more energy. Because isn't that what people want? Like when people are depressed, what is their biggest complaint? It seems to not even just be the sadness. It seems to be the lack of motivation, the lack of energy. 
So, you know, while I, I would, I wish that I could channel my motivation in a practical way, in a profitable way, even, I really wish I could do that right now. I wish I had that million dollar idea. Just the fact that I'm using my energy feels like some kind of success. And I don't want to put limitations upon that energy. I don't want to feel like I'm constrained to any one place, any one mode, any form of expression. And we're going through a growing pain, and there might be some new mediums. You know, you you might be the guy who in five years is like, yeah, well, virtual reality social clubs, you know, they're kind of weird. I'm an old school social media guy. I'm an old uh, Twitter guy. You know, you might be one of those people because those people exist now even on the Internet. There's people who are like, you know, I'm a forum guy. I didn't like when uh, forums shifted to social media. I feel that way. I prefer forums over social media. I, I won't get into the chronology thing again, but I think the Internet did take a bad turn when it emphasized non-chronological information. Because forums were chronological. The internet up to a point was largely chronological. Like if you ever used LiveJournal, when you looked at your friend's posts, they were all chronological. Social Meteor, I think one of the reasons why it fucks with people's heads and why people think it's so suspicious and algorithms are so scary is because they said, oh, you're not going to see things chronological. And even when you choose to have things displayed chronological, it doesn't work properly. Like, even though I have my social media or accounts set up to be chronological, Batty, um, telling you, Batty, uh, even though I've set things up to be chronological, I can still see errors. I can still tell that it's not displaying perfectly. And that bothers me. It bothers me that even when I set it chronologically, things disappear or don't show up right. So why did they mess with the chronology to begin with? Chronology is how we understand things. It's how we sort things. And I think that is something incredibly nefarious that is played into the manipulation that goes on with social media. Whether it's just chaos or whether it's deliberate or whether it's both, I think it's a little bit of everything. It bothers me that these things became non-chronological. And it's like, I don't even understand how they rank things. Like, you'll see things, if you sort things by, like, top post, you'll see something that has two likes at the very top. And you're like, what is it about this that made it the top, considered the top or the most popular thing? And you can see where sites like Reddit, which I'm just not a fan of, I am not a fan of that whole thing, the sort of people it creates, you want to talk about NPCs for a second, as much as I don't like to say that. That's, that's, I feel like that's a platform for and by. You heard of like FUBU, For Us, Bias. Reddit is the For Us, Bias for NPCs. But I got to get away from that thinking because I don't want to be, I don't want to dehumanize those people. But that's another great example where they have like this, this easily manipulated voting system. And then on top of that, nothing is chrono- chronological. And even with the voting system, things don't appear in the order you would expect them to. And so that just jumbles people's brains. Like, no wonder people not only have information overload, but they have so much difficulty processing all that information because now it's not even chronological. It's not even obvious why and how it's sorted the way it is. And then on top of that, it's censored. Yeah, you wonder why people's brains are going to mush. 
You wonder why people's brains are going to mush. You know, look at all that stuff, the way they're getting their information. It's not even just the, the saturation of information. It's also the fact that it's just like like chaotic and even when you think you know the system they're using, it doesn't seem to work the way they say it works. So I find that very suspicious and weird. And it does bother me. It does bother me. And if it were up to me, everything would still be chronological like a forum where you make a post and it goes to the top. Somebody replies, it goes to the top. You can see the time and date. If it's really important, it's stickied. It's stickied. You know, that idea makes sense. Why mess with that? I don't know. But they do. They got to mess with everything. Everybody's, and that's the thing too about these modern tech jobs, and I've, I've worked in them, is that someone's always messing with something. Because their job, like a lot of people don't have enough to do in these tech jobs. Like they have a lot of downtime and they have to prove their worth by coming up with brainstorm. Like they, they have the, all these brainstorming sessions. Like there's all these excessive meetings. And I've experienced this firsthand where people are just, they're always calling meetings. And all those meetings are about is like, how can we mess with things? Let's come up with a bunch of ideas. Let's brainstorm some ideas, but they're impractical. They usually are counterintuitive, and they're people who just want to keep their jobs. And that's never a good motivation for an idea. And uh, so that's kind of how I feel about all this stuff. And then going back to the chatbot idea, I kind of got sidetracked where one of the reasons I'm opposed to AI and chatbots is like, I've thought about it before because, you know, most people aren't going to use their dead relative's likeness in the form of an AI hologram. Like most people aren't going to use that for a political campaign like the Parkland shooting guy's parents did. Most people are going to use that to talk to their dead relative. And those are the same people who would tell you like, oh, I'm not, I'm, I would never go to a psychic medium. I would never go to a psychic medium to talk to my dead relative through a medium. Yet a lot of those people would probably get hoodwinked into talking to their dead relative through a chatbot or AI or a holograph, a hologram, you know, and that's just because people are easily misled by technology because they think that it's legit. And it is. That's what I've been saying all along is that you can inhabit technology in the same way you inhabit the physical world because it's part of the physical world. And do you, and the physical world isn't limited to your body. Like your mind is a part of that. Your soul is a part of that. So why should that not apply to other physical devices that you use? And especially if you use them truthfully, because maybe that's a part of this is that you have to use them honestly. You have to be you have to come from a place of purity. And if you come from a place of impurity, you're going to see everything else on there as impure too. Like if you're using social media or in an impure way, you're going to assume everybody else on there is impure. And that's psych 101 crap, but it's, that's, that is true. You know, if you're coming from a place of impurity, you will notice the impurities of others because they're inevitable. We're imperfect. But with chatbots and stuff like that, like I've thought before about like, oh, people aren't going to use this in necessarily a manipulative way. They're going to use it to try to talk to their dead mom. And I've thought before about like, oh, what would it be like to chat with my deceased mom? I feel like they would, I feel like you would get a number of responses 
that are reminiscent enough of the way your loved one talked to where you kind of like are like, oh, you know, there's something to this. But I feel like you would ask a certain question and break it. Like, I feel like inevitably, no matter how good it is, you'd reach a point where the uncanny valley reveals itself. And that would be so much more painful and so much worse than not being able to chat with your dead relative through AI. Like you would you would be talking to them and you'd be like, oh, she she uses the same emojis she used. Oh, my mom used to always use that word. And then all of a sudden, like you'd break it and they'd say something out of character or that revealed itself as AI, as a robot. And then you'd be like, oh, it'd be more painful rather than just learning how to accept the end of someone's material existence and not being able to talk to them anymore. I'd rather accept that, which has been my process in the last year, than having some simulated version that doesn't include their soul. Because isn't that what's missing? Because you can talk to your mom through text messages while she's alive, and even though it's a text message and it's not your mom's voice, it's still your mom. Because she's inhabiting that text message that she's sending to you, and she's alive. So her soul is sending you a text message. But you could continue to receive text messages from her after she's dead. But it's not her, and you know that, no matter how good the AI is. If that isn't proof of a soul, I don't know what is, you know? The fact that you can still continue to receive the same messages from someone living or dead, but you know the difference. You know, that to me is some sort of evidence of something, and soul is a placeholder word. But at the end of the day, it's all incomprehensible. Heaven is incomprehensible. The soul is incomprehensible. We only have just the slightest feeling as to what that is, and we don't need more than that because that slightest feeling is so powerful. And rather than, you know, trying to find some scientific... That's pseudoscience. AI is pseudoscience. People throw pseudoscience around. Trying to recreate your dead relative through a chat bot or through AI, that is pseudoscience. That is science being used to create something fake that I don't think will contribute to our lives at all. I think that will only make our lives more painful and detached. And that's why I'm not just gung-ho about all modern technology and all science, because it has to, you know, in order to be authentic, it has to understand what we really are and what we really need. And we don't need, you know, hollow text messages that simulate the way our mom used to text us. You know, in my case, my mom was only texting for, you know, five years before she passed away or something like that, you know, so my relationship to her wasn't even based on texting. But it's like, to me, that's a distortion of our needs, it's a distortion of who we are. And while I believe that we can inhabit whatever it is we touch, especially when you're in kind of a flow state like I am right now. I feel like I'm aware of it at least. I, I may not inhabit it any more or less than I normally do, but I'm, a, I'm much more aware of it. You know, but to turn that into some sort of game that we play with people who are no longer here is a complete distortion of what it means to inhabit these things. 
And these are the sort of philosophical questions, the spiritual questions that we should be asking. And I don't even feel that I've quite gone to the place I want to go with these thoughts. But this is enough for now. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can